This is episode 52 of the Higher Christian Life broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. One of the unmistakable truths that leads to a fuller understanding of the higher Christian life is our embracing the fact of the Holy Spirit living in us. Now, I know you know that, at least cognitively, like as a fact, and you probably have this truth hidden for safekeeping somewhere deep in the recesses of your brain, but that's not where the reality of this wonder takes place. And it is not the knowledge of this truth that leads to the higher Christian life but the experiencing of this truth. And we find this truth revealed even in the name of Jesus given him before time began. Do you remember? Isaiah says, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Got that? God with us. Well, what does that mean in real life? How is God living and abiding in us affect our practical life? I mean, what change does he bring in our life? Can others see him in us? And if so, how exactly? Ah, there are so many questions that the simple name Emmanuel brings to light. So join us as we begin to answer these questions and learn how to experience the higher Christian life, God with us. Let's jump right on in, shall we? Christmas season. And it's Christmas season, we have a tendency of looking at this word Emmanuel. We just sang some songs that talked about Emmanuel. This name first pops up in Isaiah 7. It's several times in Isaiah 7. It pops up again in Isaiah 8. It uh, basically says this, and all scholars, the Christian church for 2,000 years have interpreted this as a messianic promise about the Messiah. And as we go through this, you'll understand why. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And what is that sign? Only sign ever filled, uh, the, the only Jesus fulfilled this sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Okay. If you're like me, I want to see where that comes from. You go back and you look at the Isaiah passage and you realize it has to do with Amos and his sons. And, and it's a terrible time where the king of Israel now is is being attacked by the Syrians, being attacked by Judah. He makes some deal with the Assyrians, and they basically torment him. And so this is a sign given, a sign given to the king back there in context that this son will be born, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. There's no fulfillment of that. Nobody knows who the son was. Nobody knows who the mother was. Nobody even knows why this passage was stuck in the middle of this prophecy about this king that lived so many years ago. And it's like one of those uh, prophecies we find or one of those actions we find in the Old Testament that are clueless to us until they're fulfilled in the New Testament. There's Moses. Moses takes this pole and he takes brass and he creates some sort of serpent kind of symbol. And he takes the symbol out there and holds it up. And if the people who are bitten by these serpents will just look upon this symbol on a pole lifted up in front of them, they will be healed. Why is that even in there? That makes no sense at all. The Old Testament never explains it. As a matter of fact, it almost seems kind of contrary because it is kind of a pagan symbol he's putting up there, but God told him to do it. And it's not until Jesus tells us exactly what that meant. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. 
And everyone who looks upon the Son of Man, who looks upon the completed death, substitutionary, atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith will be saved. Oh, it's six centuries later. And now in the New Testament, we understand the prophecy in the Old. This is another one of those prophecies. We have no idea why it's in there. We have no idea how it was ever fulfilled. And if you'll read the text um, and the story around that here in chapter 7 and later on in chapter 8, it doesn't explain any of that until Matthew clears it up for us. And here's what Matthew says. Matthew chapter 1 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. He's listing it here. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, make sure everybody understands that, there was no consummation of this relationship. She was found with child, not of Joseph, but of the Holy Spirit. Then her husband, Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, which could have led to her death, was minded to put her away secretly. I'm going to divorce her secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you, as the head of the family, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Matthew is writing this to his Jewish audience. They understand um, kind of what's going on here, but he wants to sum it up for them to show that the event that's taking place right now was the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. So all was done, Matthew says, so it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds for us, something the Isaiah passage doesn't, tells us what that word means, what that name means, which is translated God with us. God with us. An absolute foreign concept to Judaism. Foreign concept to every major religion that people have today. The fact that God is with us makes absolutely no sense at all. I want you to understand that there is a profound distinction between what the Old Testament teaches. I am with you. God is with you. I will strengthen you. I will rescue you. I will carry you out and deliver you on eagle's wings. I will be with you in the tabernacle. I will be with you wherever you walk. I will be with you in your camp. I will go in front of you with fire or smoke or behind you with fire. I will be with you. I will rain down manna from heaven on you. Do not be afraid. I am with you. The land I'm presenting to you, even though they're mighty and have great forts in there, do not be afraid of them. I will go with you. It's a promise that God continually makes to his people to encourage them. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. That's the whole Old Testament, if you think about it. God is with his people. I'm going to prove it this way and prove it this way. Just trust me. I am with you. That's one distinction. But now it changes. Instead of I am with you, says God, it's God is with us 
says the people. The people. The first vantage point is from God giving a promise. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. I will be with you. Go into the promised land. I will be with you. Don't worry about anything. I will be with you. Uh, Look, the Syrian guy is here with all his armies, and it's just us, Elijah, and I'm afraid. Open up his eyes. Boom, I am with you. Do you remember all that? But the name Emmanuel means God with us. And now the vantage point changes, and this is the first time in the Old Testament where the vantage point doesn't go from a promise of God trying to convince his people this is true to a people who are experienced this truth and going, yes, God with us. We now proclaim it, Emmanuel, God with us. God speaking, I'll be with you. That's already happened. We've received it. We understand it. And now the people cry out, God, yes, he's with us. I don't have to go to where God is. He's with us. I don't have to go to the tabernacle and have priests intercede for me and only one person gets to go into the Holy of Holies where God dwells. Instead, now God is not there. God is with us. God is with me. Emmanuel has come, God with us. I told you last week that we were going to be just looking at this one phrase because I really... um, I really have not been able to get it out of my mind. You know, we've been talking so much this last year about the higher Christian life, which simply means for you to experience Christ in ways that you've never experienced him before. If you are closer to the Lord than you've ever been before, fantastic. Keep moving forward. If there was a time in your life that you were closer to him than you are now, then the higher Christian life for you to begin with is just to recapture lost ground. Then realize that God is with us. I mean, what in the world does that mean? Emmanuel, a word that we just throw around. Hi, Emmanuel. Oh, God with us. I mean, what does that mean? What does that mean? Not a promise from God that I may or may not accept. And even in the Old Testament, God was with them, but they had to meet certain requirements. If you do this, and if you do that, and if you don't do this, then I will be with you. But If you do this, I'm not going to be with you, and I'm going to pour down the curses on you that I poured down on your enemy. That's frightening. God is only, it's almost like works-based in the Old Testament. God is with me, and even, even if I'm doing the right thing, he's not with me permanently. He's with me only for a season, like Samson. Power of God comes on him. He does some mighty thing. Then he acts stupid again. The power is gone. You know what I mean? What does it mean in the New Testament? God with us. Well, all right, theologically, I guess that means that, um, let me see, he's the third person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And so if the Holy Spirit is fully God and completely God, and and as much God as God the Father is, then the Holy Spirit now lives with us because Jesus is no longer with us. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, but the Holy Spirit's in us right now, and he never leaves us or forsakes us, although we can grieve him. So God with, oh, I know what that means. It means the Holy Spirit living in me. All right, that's the Edo answer. That's the theological answer. That's a Sunday school answer. What does it mean here? What does it mean for you to have God himself with you, with you? And we find out in the book of John, it's not just with you, but in you, 
resting in you, abiding in you, making his home in you as you make your home in him. We are in Christ. We find out in the epistles of Paul. And here, God is with or in us. I mean, what is that like? When it dawns on you, the magnitude of the blessing that we have, like, wow, it's just, that's incredible. Does it fill you with confidence? Does it fill you with power? Does it fill you with this overwhelming joy? Does it, does it make you want to bow your knees to the Lordship of Christ, realizing that in the Old Testament, they never, ever, ever were able to experience what you experience or can experience every single moment of your life. It's not like only on the holy days we get to go to Jerusalem and there's the big temple and there's certain places we can go and we can't go. There's certain priests and even they can't have access to the Holy of Holies except once a year and only one priest chosen by lot. I wonder what it would be like to, to be that guy, to be able to once in your life, like John the Baptist's father, to be able to actually go in to the Holy of Holies and offer incense. I mean, it's been a, a, a life-changing event to meet, not God face-to-face, but where God dwells between the wings of the cherubim. Oh, I remember that. It was incredible. And you and I have that ability every moment of every day. The book of Hebrews says that we can boldly, confidently, with assurance, go into the holy of holies because the veil has been split and there's nothing that separates us from God. So much so that God has come to live in us. His name will be Emmanuel, which translated not God for you, not God around you, not God next to you, but God with you. And then John talks about God in you. Paul says, and you in Christ. It should literally change everything. So here's the question. On the last Sunday of 2021, is God in you? Let's do the theological answer. Everybody in here that is saved, that, uh, and, and the sign of your salvation, of course, is good fruits, and good fruits come from the Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit lives in you, he's your deposit, your guarantee of your future inheritance to come, as so it says in the book of Ephesians. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, I will ask the question, is God with you? And you would raise your hands, theologically, doctrinally. I know that for a fact. Okay, okay. But do you know it experientially? Have you experienced God in you? Does he move in you? Does he empower you? Does he gift you? Does he he fulfill his promises to you? Or is it just, no, I know that as a fact, but it never gets any further than here. I take the test, I give the right answer, I make a hundred, I go home. But as far as experiencing this power, this glorious manifestation of God living in you, which makes you a sanctuary, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, have you experienced that in your life? And if so, what is that like? Oh, it's the greatest moment I've ever experienced in my entire life. Would you say that you were a 10 spiritually at that time? Yes. What are you now? I don't know, a seven. Why? 
Why? What's the difference between a 10 and a 7? The Holy Spirit is the same. The ability to experience him is the same. The difference is us grieving him, not caring about him, just going on with life, doing the things that we want to do because my life's pretty busy. But if God is in you, God is with us, how does our life reflect that? I mean, look back on this last year. Is your life more Christ-honoring in December than it was in January? Have you been able to lead people to the Lord by the power and the courage and the strength and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in you this year from January to to where we are right now? Or are we just kind of plateaued? When you walk into a room Does the Holy Spirit in you make those in that room whose eyes are clouded by the God of this age uncomfortable? Or is it really no big deal? Has God opened up his word to you so much so that you've had aha moments and oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And this is absolutely incredible. I want to pick up the phone and call somebody and tell somebody. If you're a man, are you leading your your family to be more Christ-likeness? Have the more of Christ's likeness in you? Or are you like most of us? No, I'm just I'm working real hard trying to make money, satisfying my temporal goals. You know, I've got a two-year, five-year, 10-year plan for my business. Do you have a two-year, five-year, 10-year plan for your relationship with Christ? How does that work? I'm, there's so much here that I want to show you. I'm just going to hit a couple verses here. To uh, That's not really true. I'm going to show you a couple verses and I'm going to read a lot uh, to show you about this God living in you. The first verse, of course, is the verse we've been looking at for the last couple weeks in the book of Acts, talking about the Holy Spirit and talking about this word power. Here's what he said, but you shall receive power to the church then and to us today. When? When? When does the power come? The power comes when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the power. And, you know, there's confusion about, is that baptized in the Holy Spirit? Is that filled with the Holy Spirit? Is that a Jude the power from on high? It doesn't matter. You know, we can talk about that at some other point in time. But the reality is you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And so, therefore, you have the power. You have just as much power that comes with God, whether we use that or not, or appropriate that into our life, is really up to us. Power. John 14, I hope you all turn to it, Jesus begins talking about this Holy Spirit. The chapter begins with him saying that he's going to be leaving, and they're all upset. the disciples are all upset. What are we going to do without you? And he says, it's okay. I'm going to be leaving. I'm going up to heaven, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm preparing a place for you, I will come and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, you will be also. And then there's a bunch of discussion here about who Christ is. Show us the Father. Dialogue of, I've been with you, and you don't recognize me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then Jesus gets down to the good part. The part that just doesn't deal with them, but also deals with us. And he begins in verse 15. We spent a lot of time going over this in the past. If you love me, keep my commandments. And, and, almost like a condition here. I will pray the Father, and he, the Father, will give you another helper, another advocate, another intercessor, 
Literally, it means one who comes alongside. He'll give you someone else. I've already told you I'm leaving, and you're upset because I'm leaving physically from your midst, but I'm going to pray, and God will give you someone not confined to time and space like I am. He will give you another helper. And we spent a lot of time talking about that word, another. It means another of the exact same kind, not another of a different kind. I got another car. Mine's a Ford. That's a Chevy. But it's another of the identical kind, an exact replica. That's what the word means. I will give you an exact replica of me. And he may abide with you forever. Amazing word, abide. We talked about that when we went through John 15. It means to rest, to dwell, to make your home, to be one united in heart, mind, and spirit. This spirit, this another helper promised by Christ, will abide and rest and dwell in us forever. Well, who is this spirit? Verse 17, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. This is the gnosko, it's experiential knowing. Not just I know him up here, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. Uh, I read my systematic theology book, and here's the definition it gave, and I believe that. No, you know him experientially. But you know him, how? For he dwells with you currently and will be in you in the future, in Acts chapter 2, when you receive this power. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, he says, and I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you, I present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, That's Acts chapter 2. He has already sent it, and he now lives in you, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And what will happen? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then we get to John 15. And he amplifies that in an incredible way. I mean, they've already been in the upper room. They've left. They're on their way to the uh, Kidron, through the Kidron Valley, up into the Mount of Olives. He's giving his disciples his last teaching here, three full chapters of red ink in uh, the book of John. When we get to 15, he begins to give an agriculture example that they will understand of a vine and a branch and fruit. We have a gardener who owns the garden, we have a vine, and in that vine, we have a branch, and on that branch, we have fruit. And he makes this analogy that they would all understand as they were probably passing grapevines on the way out, heading again into the Mount of Olives, and he's explaining to them this relationship between us and the Father, Christ and us, Christ and the Father, all consummated in the person of the Holy Spirit, God with us. Verse 1, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Well, thank you very much for laying out the parameters of this example. You're the vine. The vine includes the roots, the stalk, the fruit, the branch, the leaves, everything we see. That's a vine. And my father is the one that controls the vine. He's the vine dresser. Every branch 
a part of the vine. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he, the Father, prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the words which I have spoken to you. I'm confused. Okay. Abide in me. This is the crux now. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Blank looks on their faces. I, I don't understand who is who. All right, let me, let me settle this for you. I am the vine. You are the branches, part of the vine. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, but without me you can do nothing. That's our job. That's, that's, the, that's the job description of a believer in Christ. We simply stay connected to the vine. We receive our nutrients from the vine. We are able to have branches, and our whole job as a Christian is simply to bear his fruit. And if you read more, you find out the fruit is not for us. The fruit is for the vine dresser. It's for the Father, for his glory. That's all we're supposed to do by this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And then he gets to the latter part of this chapter. Here's what he says. But after that analogy and prior to this, he talks about tough times and persecutions that will follow. But when the helper comes, oh, that's, that's that Holy Spirit again. That's that God living in us. These, these Jewish believers at that time had no clue what he was talking about. When the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he, the Holy Spirit, will testify of me. Okay. Well, all right. What else does that mean? And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Back to Acts 1, verse 8. It's when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will bear testimony of me, Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses in all the world because it will be empowered by my Spirit, God with us. God in us. And then we get to chapter 16. I find this amazing. It begins, of course, by talking about some persecution that's going to take place. Verse 4 says, But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But I'm not going to be with you much longer physically. Verse 5, But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And then we have verse 7. Nevertheless, I want to tell you the truth. You don't understand it. You're hurt because I'm not with you. I want to tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. What? I've sacrificed my livelihood. I've sacrificed my reputation in the community. A lot of my family has turned against me. I've been kicked out of the synagogue. You have handled everything, Jesus. I've just followed you. You, from Peter, you gave me power to walk on water, that you answered all my dumb questions, that you fed 5,000 people with just uh, a sack lunch. You've done amazing things. What do you mean you're going to be leaving and it's somehow better for me that you're not here? 
Yes, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. From Jesus' standpoint, Jesus said it is better for him not being in this church service with us today, physically, getting up here teaching us. It is better for him to be gone so that every one of us would have him in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit, when we left this place and went home and took him with us to work tomorrow. And to every time where we go, no matter where we are, we have God with us. That's who this Jesus is. So, getting ready to close out this year, um, my question to you is this. What, what do you expect the Holy Spirit to do in your life next year? If you, if you spend time with him next year like you did this year, if you did or don't do the same things this year as you did, or next year as you did this year, he won't do any more in your life than he already has. And that's called a plateau. That's called living in Laodicea. That's not really hot and not really cold, just kind of in the middle where it's comfortable for me. I got one foot in the world and one foot supposedly doing his will. And it's this tension that I have, but my affections are more in the world until you experience him. And once you experience him, it eclipses everything this world has to offer. Everything it has to offer. The key is experiencing him. So what do you expect him to do? How do you want to experience Emmanuel, God with us next year? My suggestion is this, um, and you've heard me say this before, that there are two ways to be successful about anything, anything. You, um, whether it's training for an Olympic event or whether it's building a business or whether it's going to school and making good grades or being a parent, there's two ways to be successful. One is to find someone who is successful, who is where you want to be, who is experiencing what you want to experience and come up to them and say, will you mentor me? Will you show me what I need to be doing? And they'll look at your life and they'll say, dump this, dump this, dump this, and do this, do this, and do this. Why? Because it works for me and I'm a living example of where you want to be. We do that in every area of life except church life because we don't really know many people who are much more spiritual than we are. Okay, that's one way to be successful. Number two is to find someone who is not successful and do exactly the opposite of what they do. True? Okay, so let's look at your life and my life. If we've spent most of 2021 as a seven or a six, maybe we got up to a nine once or twice, sometimes we got down to a three or four, and we're just kind of hovering in lukewarmness then whatever you did last year ain't working. You realize that? It's not. It's not working for me. It's not working for you. It's not working for him. So whatever we think we feel comfortable with, well, I've only got a few minutes here. Let me just try to skim through this my utmost for his highest, and that's it for you, God, today. We're going to end up with the exact same results, maybe worse, at a time in our lives when we need to soar spiritually because world's getting rough out there, is it not? If you will understand all he has for you. I've quoted this verse literally in this church probably a hundred times. 
the doxology in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Do you remember it? You should have memorized it by now. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly powerful words there, beyond all we can have the faith to ask or even imagine in my mind or think according to the power, same power, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, same word of the Holy Spirit living in us, according to the power that works in us, the Holy Spirit in us and in the church, the collection of individuals with the Holy Spirit power working in them. To him, be glory in the church to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you remember? That's a promise that says, I can do more than you can even imagine if you'll just trust me and surrender your life to me to experience this higher Christian life. But I want to close with this. Um, I want to take a look backwards. Some of us have uh, tried. Some of us have failed. Some of us haven't even tried. Some of us are still too entangled with the world right now that we're not going to let go of anything else. Some of, some of us, when it comes to the question of holiness, keep asking this question, well, what's so bad about it? Rather than, is it something Christ would want me to do? So I want to give you a warning. Um, there's first a promise and a warning. We find that in Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9. It's kind of chilling passage here. Let me give you the promise first. Here's what he says. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is kind of like the Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 verse. God said that he will instruct us and teach us in the way we should go in such an intimate way that he will guide you with his eye. His eye. I mean, think about that. You know, it's one thing to have a relationship with somebody where they tell you what to do. No, 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 I don't want you doing that. I want you to do this. Here's your instructions, and you respect them enough to do it. It's another one, another kind of relationship and intimacy with someone where they don't even have to speak the word. They can just look at you, and you know exactly what they're thinking and exactly what they want you to do. They can guide you with their eye. Not even a shake of a head. You just look at them. And you can read in their face, oh, no, this, I, this, no I'm not going to do this. I, I don't want to do this. That presupposes an intimacy. And God is saying here in the Psalms, this is the kind of relationship I want to have with you. And with the Holy Spirit now living in you, which he didn't in them back then, this is the kind of relationship that is available for you. But there's a warning. Don't be like the horse are like the mule, who have no understanding, no wisdom, no knowledge, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, stuck in their mouth to cause pain to get them to succumb, or else they will not come near to you. I have been this kind of believer before, that God has had to slap that thing on my face, and the, the bit bites into the top of my mouth, so he's pulling me, and I'm fighting against it. Why? You're going to lose. It's just painful for you. Why don't you just submit? Okay. And I'm telling you, when he takes this off, and he doesn't call you a mule anymore, it's wonderful to have the kind of relationship where he can just teach you what he wants you to do by just looking at you in love. I would ask you today to... Um, to go home, 
find a quiet place, maybe a sheet of paper and lying down, write down all the things that you want to accomplish, things that are good for you, the, the things that are important to you, the things that you worry about. And then on the other side of the sheet of paper, simply write, God is with me. God is in me. I abide in him, and the purpose of my life is to bear much fruit for the Father's glory. Not for yours, but for the Father's glory. And then look at that. One is human wisdom, and one is godly wisdom. Which one do I choose? And if I choose godly wisdom, can I experience him in ways that you can't imagine? The answer is yes. Yes, to think otherwise is to call him a liar. And there's this spiritual life out there that will forever change the way you view anything and will reap for us, if you want to think like a businessman, eternal benefits when our Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Let me pray.